If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. When I was here in the late 60s, my dad ran Inglenook. I worked at Inglenook as a kid. Uh, I was 19 years old, I think. You know, there was Charles Krug, Louis Martini, Inglenook, Beaulieu, Berenger, Joseph Phelps was, uh, had just started, Heights, uh, Stony Hill had been started in the, in the mid-50s or late-50s, and that was it. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 536. This week we feature Brian Maloney, Vice President of Winemaking at Deloche Vineyards and Buena Vista in Sonoma. I've interviewed Brian Maloney, Vice President of Winemaking at Deloche Vineyards and Buena Vista in Sonoma several times over the years. Each interview furthers my own wine education. Overseeing this kind of production is a daunting task, but working with a boss like Jean-Charles Boisset makes it an adventure. Come listen in to our chat at Deloche Vineyards and have a sip, why don't you? Listen to Brian on our Vino Lingo segment, defining the term ghosts. I'm in Sonoma, and I am here with our friend Brian Maloney. And what's fun today, as opposed to the previous times we've interviewed Brian at Buena Vista, Brian is here at Deloche. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well, Ray. You know, I want to be very clear on your title these days. You are now Vice President of Winemaking. Is that correct? It is. It is. Uh, I'm overseeing the winemaking for uh, Boisset Collection here in Sonoma at Deloche, as well as Buena Vista. And... Uh, other sundry projects that John Charles Boisset uh, has me uh, has me working on. I imagine he keeps you pretty darn busy. He does. He uh, is a man of many interests, and I have to say I share a lot of them with him. So it's always a lot of fun to hear about the new directions and explorations that we're we're going towards. You know, he's an incredibly dynamic man. He is, he is a true Renaissance man. But what he's done for Napa and what he's also done for Sonoma has been really something to really raise the bar. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Deloche estate, I've had the, the pleasure of working here. Um, I started here in 2003 and seeing its evolution um, from what was a very uh, kind of traditional Sonoma County style winery in that day and age where you're making a lot of different varieties, um, where, for lack of a better word, things may have been a bit formulaic and to see him right off the bat infuse it um, with the energy and the, the commitment to, you know, transforming it into this Pinot Noir powerhouse house, this place where we um, oversaw uh, one of the first conversions in Sonoma County to biodynamic agriculture across our estate. And going out and exploring, you know, new and upcoming terroirs like down in Marin County um, to, to really uh, see what can happen with Pinot Noir when you look at it through that, that Burgundian lens, that eye of this piece of terroir, what does it represent? Um, it's it's that's just Deloche. I mean, and that's not talking about what we've done at Buena Vista and beyond. Yeah, and you, you kind of went down a path there at Biodynamic. I had no idea that you were Biodynamic at Deloche. Yeah, we um, started the conversion actually. So it, it, 
step back a little bit. Um, in 2003, the Boisset family purchased the winery, actually, uh, right around this time, um, and, uh, you know, inherited a site that had been planted by the Deloches in the early 1970s, the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, one of the first sites um, in this part of the Russian River to be planted to those varieties. And over the years, it had been farmed um, fairly conventionally, and, and the land was taken care of, but at the same time, the vines were 30 plus years old and were starting to suffer from disease and really just a lack of health in the soil itself. Uh, a lot of the farming practices that were happening in the 70s and 80s and 90s were, were extractive. You know, you were taking out the nutrients and, you know, you were trying to replace them with salt-based fertilizers, things like that, that really don't have the ability to keep that soil tilth and health and um, everything going on. And so we, we looked at the site in 2004, quite extensively, we saw that there was tremendous quality capabilities here. Um, in fact, that 2004 vintage of our estate Pinot Noir was the wine enthusiast number one wine of the year. But the yields were, were horrendous. The number of dead vines out in the field was was tragic. Right. Um, and so we, we went to the process of revitalizing the land. Um, and that involved tearing out those vines. It involved, you know, st keeping a full year of um, cover crop rotations going on. So all of 2005 was all about just bringing health back into the vineyard, bringing a lot of compost in. Um, we did successive cover crops, first with uh, uh, nitrogen, you know, green growers, vetches, clovers, things like that. And then coming back in right before that final rip, before we planted the vines, um, putting safflower in, you know, getting something that yeah. really allows the soil to be quite friable. So you can go in, rip it, amend it with all that compost that we have generated through all our great local dairy cows and, uh, you know, uh, brought it back to a level of health and tilth so that in 2006 we started that planting. You know, farming's not easy. And uh, I remember the struggles in those early days with those first plants that we put in, farming them biodynamically and getting used to this growth pattern. I went to UC Davis, you watch vines growing, um, and you expect things to be up the wire, you know, within a year or two. And here it's a little bit slower when you're farming biodynamically. Hmm. It takes three, four years. And we were struck in 2008 by pretty significant frosts. I remember it came in sequential weekends, and we saw at first the, the, the new growth coming out of our plants um, getting burnt back, knowing that we had those secondary buds that were still, you know, back in reserve for us so that we would, would still have living plants coming out. And then two weeks later, um, it was, I, I believe it was actually April 16th. It was right around tax day. Another frost came through and it killed off all our secondary buds. <sighs> And we lost almost a third of the plants here down to the graft union. And so that set us back. And where we had been hoping to have that initial estate harvest coming off in 2009, we actually did uh, finish our conversion to uh, Demeter certified biodynamic agriculture in 2009. Um, we actually had to wait one more year to see that very initial harvest coming off of the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. That had to be hard, but not only that, but heartbreaking losing a crop like that. You know, I, we were walking the field and just, you're looking at it wondering, I, it's it's not just losing grapes, it's losing plants, um, like years of energy and work and knowing that it will be better, but that day was just hard and it was just hard everywhere, but it was better. We got better. We planted some amazing rootstocks and scions on this property. And uh, I have, you know, had the pleasure now of this has been my 13th harvest. We've now wrapped up 2022 of that estate vineyard. And uh, I, I feel like we are making better wines each and every year um, because of that commitment that we made to the land here. That's nice. I'm sure that makes you very proud to be able to do that. I, as we sit in a room with a cellar behind you, it's uh, pretty cool to see the wine. Uh, yeah, it's, 
we have had a chance now. I, you know, it's so often um, in the wine industry, you, you kind of burn through the wines that you, you, you're always talking about the latest vintage that you're selling or the ones that you've just put down into the cellar. And uh, here at the winery, we've had the opportunity with our estate wines to, to collect them in our cellars and actually offer them to our guests. And over the past several months, um, we've been bringing out a past vintage. In fact, uh, we just had the 2012 that we were tasting in the, in the tasting room a few weeks ago and seeing what this wine, 10 years on, 10 year old Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley, nice. absolutely singing. And really it was rewarding to me in a, a to me, it wasn't a very good vintage. You know, it, that's where it was even more rewarding, right? Because you're looking at a wine that you remember as, as a fairly big crop, um, had very nice fruit, but maybe didn't have the body and structure you think sure. are going to be age-worthy. And then to come back to it 10 years on and see this wine that not only puts a smile on my face, but is putting smiles on people who are just tasting it for the very first time, that's incredibly rewarding. And it, it shows that, you know, winemakers are often wrong, but um, <laughs> it's, it, it is the glass that proves itself. Yeah, I get that. I want to pick up on the biodynamic thing because uh, I'm wondering for you as a winemaker uh, in mostly a traditional world, how big of a change was that for you? You know, it was um, early on, it was a big challenge. I'll, I'll be honest. I was fresh out of UC Davis. Um, I come from a, a fairly traditional farming family in Sonoma, Marin County, um, and biodynamics seemed like voodoo and things like of that nature that, you know, you hear people talk about and think, well, they just have this romantic thought process, a romantic, uh, you know, theory of, of agriculture. It's not real. And so that, that's, I, I approached it as a skeptic. Um, and it, it started at UC Davis. I mean, some of our classes, we talked about biodynamics. We talked about, you know, the practical approaches it had, but also the limitations and Unfortunately, sometimes we get caught up in, you know, finding a single thread that we disagree with and we, we lose sight of the whole picture. And ironically, that's what biodynamics to me now um, really is all about is, is trying to encapsulate that whole picture of agriculture. And so when we start talking about the, you know, the mysticism of the stars and the lunar cycles and, you know, the, the dancing naked around the horn in the middle of the moon, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's stories that, you know, maybe someone did, but it really isn't fundamental what biodynamics is. And so when I started working here with Greg LaFollette, who was our first consulting winemaker back in 2004, um, he, he brought a much more natural approach to his winemaking and also helped me bridge my understanding of what biodynamics was doing to our site and in our wines. And really it is, I, I, I believe, and what I believe Steiner was discovering before we really knew was the, the microbiological kind of backbone that goes into our soils and into our winemaking, something that they were just scratching the surface on back in the 1920s and 30s. And now we know fundamentally um, throughout our lives are, we're very much controlled by what, what the microbiosphere is. And so when we look at soil health and we look at the health of our soil here at Deloche, fundamentally, it was dead land. Uh, there was no earthworms in this soil. It oh, was really? full of nematodes killing our plants. Um, and that's what happens when you're using all sorts of synthetics over and over again, and you have a soil that's compacted, and you're not adding back the complex macronutrients you need to keep a soil food web alive. And so 
how we brought that health back, how we brought that soil back through compost, through you know cultivation of green manures that are going back into the soil. Really, it gave us a, a living soil, and you see it in the in the tilth that's here versus what used to be here. But you also see it in the winemaking process, where previously a lot of the wines were being made, you know, in a, a very proscriptive fashion. You're adding two pounds per thousand of yeast. You're adding DAP. You're adjusting with the, you know tartaric acid. You're dialing everything into this is how this wine needs to be made, mm. as opposed to, well, this is what this vineyard is. And we're gonna kind of peel it back and we're gonna let the, the native yeast here, and we're gonna let the native nutrients coming off these grapes drive this fermentation. Mm. And where does that lead us to? Well, it leads us to a whole spectrum of flavors and styles of wine that you can craft with, in, in an interesting way, a very minimalist approach, because all you're doing is watching and guiding, watching and guiding. You have to pay attention. It's not lazy winemaking. Sometimes we, we joke about it being lazy winemaking, but it's very much making sure that you're following the details, letting that healthy fermentation take off because you've provided it the healthy environment. It's the same idea with our soils and our plants. As long as we can keep that environment healthy, then that whole biodynamic approach moves forward. Um, and it was something that early on, like I said, it was a struggle when John Charles brought in the wooden vats from France that had been used for over 30 years, um, crafting Pinot Noirs in the cellars in Burgundy. Um, I looked at them and I was just like, where, where's my stainless steel? You know, where's my nice cleanable surface? And, uh, you know, we, we jokingly called them the GDVs, the goddamn vats, because they were, they were a challenge. I mean, this is a living substance wood that you're using. Um, it's not something you can go in and blast with a pressure washer and make it sterile. It's something that you have to cultivate. You have to pay attention to. You have to make sure it's in the right environment. Yeah. Lots of little details go into keeping wood healthy. But it rewards you. Because on the other hand, when that fermentation happens, now you're having a fermentation where those yeast are using that wood. They're literally living off the sides of that wood. And that fermentation is happening in a holistic way. You're not adding that two pounds of thousands of yeast. You have a population of yeast that are building up on the surface of the sure. wood mm -hmm. and they're driving that fermentation for you. So it's a completely different turnaround. Again, it's a it's a different approach. You're you're managing an environment as opposed to managing a fermentation. Oh sure, yeah. But it but the result is is very rewarding. Uh, it's interesting to see your excitement coming forward when you do that. But I also have to chuckle as we sit here, just out of sight of our uh, our listeners, our uh, is a fireplace with a few horns sitting here. <laughs> well, and we we do definitely practice the the different um, inputs that go into it. Sure. In fact, the the prep five hundred is one that you know is near and dear to my heart um, because I I really truly believe in the the healing power of beneficial microorganisms and that more than any other part of biodynamics i think is fundamental to what what its messaging is it's we are converting this this cow manure right we're we're putting it into an environment where it can extract out micronutrients the calcium um, that comes from that horn and it can produce a, a whole you know a concentrating media of beneficial microorganisms, ones that do tremendous things to the benefit of the plants. And what are they doing? They're actually going and inoculating those plants, they're protecting those plants by colonizing its surface, as well as taking care of all of the, the decaying and dying parts of the plant. Because a leaf is gonna get damaged, no matter what, whether it's by wind, whether it's by rain, um, fungal, bacterial, what have you, there's gonna be damage out there. And what you want, you want the good guys coming out of that horn to be there. Because what they're gonna do is they're gonna eat that damaged tissue, 
and not go any further. They're not pathogenic. Um, it's the same idea of all the beneficials that we have in our guts and on our skins. We want the right ones there and we don't want to wash them off. You know, while we're not going back to the concept of, uh, in medicine anyway, to, uh, you know, use leeches to bleed us or anything like that, I think sometimes we do neglect the past and what's been learned from it and dive supersonic into to, um, technology that you got to go back and look at the roots before you make that call. You know, it's it's something that it, literally in the last couple of days, um, and I, excuse me, Ray, because I feel like sometimes when I talk with you, we end up into the fecal matters. But <laughs> literally the FDA has just approved fecal transplants for as medical care um, for people who have like IBS and other issues with their digestive systems. They are literally have now approved fecal transplants. Okay, I, I got to stop you. What, how, why? my imagination is confused it's because the microbes in some people are good and the microbes in other people are bad and they're literally taking good microbes and putting them into someone else so you're yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at so they're literally putting them into you correct well that's a scary thought on the other hand it's at the southern part of your body so you really don't have to actually face it <laughs> oh this conversation hits so fast doesn't it that's what i like about talking to you but, but it, you know, I think also the idea, um, as somebody very near and dear to me talks about the idea of we do have the ability to heal ourselves with our attitude and, and how we live on a day-to-day, -day, let alone what we eat. Yes, without a doubt. And I think that's one of the ideas behind biodynamics is your, your motivation behind your actions matter. Um, and the energy that puts out matters. Uh, we were talking earlier about the energies that places have. And you can tell biodynamic farms by the way they feel, by when you walk through them. They feel alive. The people who work there tend to have a bit more joy. They might be also a little bit, you know, a little bit funnier in a way, but that's okay. Uh, it's that energy and excitement that they bring and that passion and commitment to their land. You don't find people practicing biodynamics who are doing it by rote. They're doing it yeah, because they yeah. believe in it and they believe that what they're making, whether it's a wine, whether it's a cheese, whether it's honey, what have you, um, that the passion that they've put in to their effort, to their work, to their care for their land is coming out in that final product. And you can taste it and you can feel it when you consume it. Sure. And I think more and more people are learning better from the past. You know. I've often said as a winemaker, you live in the past, you live in the present, you live in the future. Uh, but when it comes to living in the past, and we talked about this energy in a space, um, right now as we sit here, we're being watched maybe 100 years from now. Somebody's looking back at Brian Maloney, and when he started working with biodynamics at Deloche, they're saying he was on the right tack. He was figuring it out. And it's something we forget that people will look back at us and we won't know anything about it, but we're making a difference in our own world. You're making a difference by being a biodynamic farmer. Yeah, I, I truly believe we are. And I think we're making a difference because we're, we're providing um, this continuity to this place. Um, I, I think too often we, we detach ourselves from that history. In yeah. the United States in particular, we often talk about, oh, we're such a young culture. You know, it's only been here for a couple hundred years. California has only been here, you know, maybe 150 years of winemaking history here, if you want to be really generous. Um, 170 years, what have you, with August and Harassi, I guess. Um, um, but 
that that overlooks the fact that we have these generations involved here. We have had choices that have been made. This site, this Deloche Vineyard site, is on its third generation of vineyard hmm. on this site, yeah. um, which which is something to be said. And it has seen that transition from the traditional Italian immigrant varieties that were planted, things like Carignan, Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, to that that next generation where people were mixing in Gewurztraminer um, into their plantings and the very first Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. And now we're seeing it become more specialized into just those two varieties. And we see that because of the choices, the experiments. Sure. The mistakes. The mistakes. But also the passion that people are bringing to it. And I, I appreciate that I'm going to be at least a little bit of that story here at Deloche Vineyards over the last few years. And um, like we were talking about earlier, the ability to share the history of these wines that we've been able to craft here is um, tremendously important to me. Also, that, that history goes back to what we've been able to do with another variety that we haven't talked about yet, and that's Zinfandel. And that's one that, that goes to the the core of Deloche's identity back in the, the very first vintages, it was very much about old vines and Fendel. This was what made Cecil Deloche and his family passionate about winemaking was these old vines. And it's something that we here continue. And it's something that you know, we, we see this struggle with Zinfandel, keeping it in the kind of the um, the forefront of of wine talk, because it often gets overshadowed either by Cabernet Sauvignon, sure. in particular in the Napa Valley, where a lot of those old vineyards were taken out for cab. And over here in the Russian River, a, a site um, right here on all of that road, um, we, we see this battle every day where we see the the struggle to keep these old vines pertinent and keep people hmm. wanting to farm them and consume them. And so we have been trying and showing and I think succeeding with some fantastic old vines and fendels in this area, ones that are distinct, ones that are terroir driven, and ones that have survived now for 100 plus years, which is not something you can say for many places in the world to be able to try a, a wine coming from vines that are over 100 years old. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I will speak to uh, experience. I've tried and, and it is very different and it's very good. A person who doesn't drink a ton of Zin, I do like it when it's good. Well, thank you. Um, I think Russian River Valley Zinfandel in particular yes. um, has a brightness and a freshness to it that you don't get. I, I would hazard to say maybe a couple other places in California produce it like that, but very, very few. And I don't know of any that have the same kind of intensity of both fruit as well as a, a mineral floral element that comes out in these wines. They're a very special uh, species of Zinfandel. Part of that, I have to say, is the, the the cool climate nature that we have here. We really are on the edge of where Zinfandel ripens consistently, hmm. but a lot of it also has to do with that. We have phenomenal soils and phenomenal plantings that date back that, that hundred years like I was talking about. Plantings intermixing things like Carignan, Petit Syrah, Mouvedre, Alicante Boucher, each making their own contribution to these these fantastic wines. I want to come back to that in one second, but just a quick question more of, uh, uh, for the record, uh, how many cases are you producing here, roughly? Uh, so we do about 1,000 tons a year, which equates out to 50,000 cases. Okay, just wanted to get an idea. Yeah. And how many vintages have you done biodynamic? So we our first vintage with the estate was 2010. Um, every vintage we have, except for 2020, we have um, crafted as biodynamic wine. Um, 2020, we took a mulligan. Yeah, 2020 is... 2020. 2020. Yeah, a lot, not a lot of people want to talk about 2020. It was still farmed organically and biodynamically, yeah. but we are not using it on the label. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair to say. You mentioned Movedra, which is one of my particular yeah. favorite wines. Are you doing that on its own uh, varietal in a bottle or no? 
we make some Mouvedre here. So Deloche Winery is a, a little bit of my playground. Um, <laughs> I get to work with about 25 different varieties every vintage. Nice. Um, again, it's a glorious thing to have John Charles Boisset as your boss. Some of these are um, bottled for the Buena Vista Viticultural Society, though. So we have a fantastic cellar here with lots of small fermenters, incredible diversity of fermenters from amphoras, clay amphoras to uh, uh, concrete vessels, both egg shape as well as cube shape, stainless steel, wood vats, what have you. So I get to play, I get to experiment, our team gets to experiment and experience a, an incredible range of, of wine making styles because of that, as well as varieties. And so we have a little bit of Mouvedre um, that we work with, yes. Okay, just wanted to get an idea yeah. because it's a purely selfish question. Yeah. Concrete eggs or um, clam forests, yes. uh, those, let's just talk those two specific sure. ones. What would the difference be to the average wine lover tasting wine that came out of that? Well, concrete has become one of my favorite vessels to, to use as a fermentation and aging um, vessel. And that's because it, it provides you a lot of true neutrality. Um, and what I mean by that is we often think of the stainless steel tank. I grew up with the stainless steel tank being the most neutral vessel. Fairly early on, you start having conversations in the cellar with other winemakers and enologists and such about wines being tanky. And what does that mean? Well, it's it's been in a tank too long. And what does that what does that give to the wine? Well, it has a metallic edge to it. And that is because stainless steel does add flavor. I know that's going to be controversial to some folks, but it really does. It it gives a metallic sharpness to the wines. You do duo trio blind testing. Stainless steel acts as its own flavor. Plus or minus. Now, are you referring to both reds and whites, or are you just talking whites here? I'm talking whites primarily. That's the, what I thought. The, the duo trio testing that we've done has all been on whites. Yeah, I just yeah. want to be clear yeah. on that point. What we did um, several years back, and we've had the, the great pleasure, pre-COVID at least, to, to work quite a bit with students coming out of the University of Dijon, coming over, doing a senior project with us. We get a lot of hard work out of them. They get something that they can go graduate from college with. So it's, you know, win-win for everyone. And um, one of our, uh, one of the students that came, Pierre, forget his last name, anyways, Pierre, um, wanted to do one looking at the comparison between wood fermentation, stainless steel fermentation, and concrete fermentation. So we took the exact same Chardonnay vineyard that we work with, the, the Boreolo vineyard, just around the corner from us here in the Russian River. We brought in about 20 tons. We pressed it, put it into a stainless steel tank just to settle, homogenize it. So everything was the same. We then split it up between neutral French oak barrels. So barrels that had been used at least three vintages. So in theory, minor amounts of wood extract available to any fermentation. Sure. We did it to concrete cubes, actually, not to eggs, but cubes. So 240 gallon vessels. Um, and then we did it to a stainless steel tank that was also 240 gallons fermented them. We did inoculate these. We wanted to have as much control as possible. Sure. So everything was treated the same, inoculated with yeast. And then after fermentation, we, we brought them out and did an initial set of tastings. And then another six weeks later, we did another set of tastings. And what we found in a blind tasting, we did what's called a duo trio test where you would kind of force pair some things, sure. um, was that while there were differences between all three, there was more similarities between the barrel fermentation and the concrete than the stainless steel. Hmm. Where everyone going into that is expecting the stainless steel and the concrete to be grouped together. We actually saw the opposite. The barrel and the concrete were grouped together. Yeah, it's interesting. And what 
my tasting notes said was that the stainless steel had a sharpness to it. It had a kind of a, a metallic flavor and a brightness to it that some people find very attractive, where both the concrete and the barrel had a creaminess to them and a softness to them. And that to me is the difference between concrete and stainless, is concrete gives you this softness. It gives you this creaminess, very similar to what you would see from a barrel fermentation. Sure where stainless was this sharpness. So um, it's something over time we've evolved to use more and more concrete, both in whites as well as reds now. Um, in fact, one of our, our fun little experimental wines we do here is a, a Carignan, some organic Carignan coming out of Mendocino County. We bring it in and we, we ferment it whole cluster, very, very all natural. Mm. We take the clusters, we put them into a concrete egg. We don't inoculate. We do a little bit of pump over just to keep the fermentation healthy and let it ferment. No yeast, no acid, no nutrients, nothing. We then press it after, looks like most of the sugar has been consumed. There's always still a lot of sugar left over because of the whole cluster. And then we finish it off in amphora. And so it is from concrete to amphora. It never sees wood, it never sees stainless. It's just in those two kind of, you know, natural materials, the, the rock of the wine world, so to speak. Huh. And that's worked out. It's worked. It's a phenomenal wine. We make a very small amount of it. It's available here um, mostly for our, our tasting room as well as our wine club. Um, but it's got a lot of ebullient, you know, floral and spice personality coming out of that Carignan. You know, Brian, what's fun about coming to talk to you is you have this um, kind of combination of hardcore science uh, farm guy from a long time ago, and uh, you were on the edge in terms of uh, what you're doing as a winemaker, which is fascinating. I enjoyed talking to you about that stuff, stuff as I say it. But uh, for our listeners who'd like to come out here and visit Deloche, is this tasting room by appointment or can you just show up here? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So we, we do recommend appointments as much as possible. And that's because uh, with the, the nature of our, our service these days, it's um, a seated service where we ask you to come pick out a table and then we can come and host you. That said, we very much will accommodate people when possible if they do walk in. Uh, currently, we're on our winter hours. And as we move into summer and spring, we, we open up and have a, a little bit more broader tastings available um, throughout the entire week. Sure. And for our listeners who would like to learn about you and about Deloche, what is your website? The best is www.delochevineyards.com. We also have some tremendous uh, social media outreach that goes on, Facebook, Instagram, um, whether it's following John Charles Boisset or Deloche or any of the uh, the sister properties of Boisset, you'll, you'll see us out there. And I, I have to recommend, though, please, um, when you get a chance, come and visit us here at the property. It is one of the most gorgeous sites, I think, in the wine country, especially when you get a chance to tour the gardens um, and come back and, and see our overlook over the Laguna. There's nothing better than a sunset over the Laguna in the back of Deloche with a with a glass of Pinot Noir. And it's a very peaceful area, which is the best part about it. Yeah. yeah. Brian, awfully good to see you again. Thanks for your time. Of course. Thank you. Learn more by visiting delochevineyards.com. Thanks for listening to the longest running wine podcast online. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gieschen. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.